0: This week's episode is extra special, not just because it was requested by listener Sue Rowe, but because I was able to see it live and get a first-hand experience of the haunted—that's right, I said haunted—ghost town of Garnet, Montana. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages Drop into the rabbit hole or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. In 1848, Credit goes to James Marshall for discovering a vein of gold in the American River just northeast of Sacramento. By the end of the year, thousands had literally rushed to the area to get their claim of fortune simply coming up from the ground. Startup costs made it relatively simple for the common man, and rare woman, to have a chance to discover a nugget or two. With a simple post in the San Francisco Californian on March 15, 1848 that read, Gold mine found in the newly made raceway of the sawmill recently erected by Captain Sutter on the American Fork River. Gold has been found in considerable quantities. California, no doubt, is rich in mineral wealth. Great chances here for scientific capitalists. Gold has been found in almost every part of the country. End quote. And with that, the gold rush was on. As recorded in 1848, approximately 1,000 non-Native Americans were living in California. In less than two years, that number jumped to over 100,000. San Francisco alone grew from less than 1,000 to over 56,000 in those two years. It's considered one of the largest migrations in the shortest amount of time in American history. At the beginning of the Western Rush, there were hardly any women. Only about 3% of the female population made a home among the 49ers. They found their place, just as the movies display, in the saloons and brothels as model artists, a.k.a. strippers, or fancy ladies, a.k.a. male companionship. But eventually families began to show up in the dirty mining camps and, as per usual, when a woman is present, a semblance of order and stability began to show up as they tend to their children and prospecting spouses. Mining towns began to emerge. As we talked about in Season 2, Episode 12, Famous Ghost Towns of the West, the towns themselves may not have been built to stand the tests of time, but they did become more than rows and rows of tents. Also from that episode, we learned that gold was not limited to California, nor was the mining limited to gold. Silver and other precious gems were being pulled from the earth and cashed in, which seems like the perfect segue to talk about the topic at hand. The Garnet Mining Town. It's believed that Garnet was named for the golden-colored Montana Garnet Gems that shifted to the tops of the mountains that differed from the dark red version found in other areas. But more on naming the town later. There wasn't a whole lot of startup cost to call yourself a prospector. Most people started, and sometimes finished, with what was called placer mining. Placer mining is a process of sifting through already broken rock in search of pieces that might have washed away from the larger vein or deposit. Panning is what happens in the movies when you see the guys that are hunched over the river and, or sometimes a small creek scooping up a tin full of sand and other broken down rock and sifting it shaking it back and forth to separate the heavy metals and minerals from all of the rest. Gold and other metals, and even gemstones for that matter, are a heavier density and so they tend to stay behind. The miners dip their pans expertly into the water, sloshing in a circular motion, allowing the sand to slip over the sides, hopefully revealing a bit of color sticking to the bottom. Rinse and repeat. Literally. There is such a high from finding the smallest glimmering rock shining back up at you that it would keep you bent over the edge of the water for hours upon hours. And if the guy next to you struck gold, you'd find the stamina to stay even longer. One more hour, one more day. Just give it one more week. The winning scoop is just around the next bend. This was the most common way to get caught in the mining craze. It didn't take much for prospectors to get lured away to other possible means of quote-unquote easy fortune. The grass is always greener and so forth. But the truth is, there was nothing easy about it. Many times they would venture out alone with nothing more than a tip or a hunch and end up facing angry Native Americans, abusive weather, and sometimes end up where even a small injury can mean death when you're out and alone facing the elements. But to hear people talk about it, once you find or are close enough to someone who finds just the tiniest piece of color, as they refer to their loot, it was as if something beyond their control took a hold of them. Prospecting was tiring and hard on the body. With all the newspaper articles of folks striking it rich, it made people wonder what they were doing wrong. But the thought of actually striking gold was too great and hard to let go of. Similar to slot machines or playing the lottery these days, people are convinced that if they try just one more time, it might be the winner. No one wanted to have to go home empty-handed. So the miners were easily swayed to try the next new thing, the next big strike, the next secret find. This would ultimately take prospecting to every corner of the West. This reminds me of the Bass Rankin holiday classic, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Remember the prospector in that movie? Yukon Cornelius. He'd throw up his pickaxe in the air, and when it landed, he'd slobber on the tip of it, only to discover there was nothing there worth digging for. Nothing. That's how I envision mining managed to spread far and wide. Gransville Stewart and his brother James left their home in Iowa to find gold when all the others did. They gave it a solid five years and finally gave in that they'd have to return home Empty handed. So they and a few others set about for the long trip back. Along the way, as all the great stories include, they came across events and roadblocks that would deter them from going straight home. They would end up wandering in Montana territory. Wherever they stopped, they'd use the Yukon Cornelius method and finally, they literally, struck gold. They were in Benetsee Creek which, not surprisingly, became known as Gold Creek, they were just digging below the rocks with a broken shovel and using an old kitchen pan when they saw the shine. This was in 1858, and the Brothers Plus stayed there and, quote-unquote, sink a shaft discovering several pockets of gold. Branville Stewart would later write, quote, The prospect hole dug by us was the first prospecting done and this is the account of the first real discovery of gold in what is now Montana. End quote. From there, a Montana boom spread into Bear Creek, and from there, and up into the mountains of Garnet. Within three weeks, five thousand people from all walks of life found their way to the area to file claims to prospect. In the years following, we were around 1866 by now. Bear Creek had turned itself into several mining districts, including Elk Mining District, Bear Gulch, Deep Gulch, and the First Chance District. This is where Garnet stems from. Granville Stewart would later write, In 1866, my predictions were verified by the discovery of the very rich mines of Bear Gulch. Gold would be found all the way from the beginning of the gulch to the summit of Garnet Ridge. Now, the problem was, once they found their precious metal, they had no way of cashing it in. There were no roads, no way for supplies to get in or the gold to get out. Enter John Mullen. He was an army engineer that was tasked with fixing that problem and up against unsurmountable odds. He accomplished the construction of Mullen Military Road from Fort Walla Walla in Washington to Fort Benton in Montana. And now that there was a main transportation road, mining towns began to develop. And even though by 1879 the road was pretty well worn in and accessible, the reach to the smaller towns starting to pop up was still inaccessible by wagons. The supplies would go as far as they could, by ferry, wagon, or sled, and then had to be broken down into smaller bundles and carried out by pack mules and horses, and humans. Many of these items of civilization would include tobacco, flour, fruit, flannel undies, candles, lard, pans for cooking, and other kitchen items, brooms, sometimes furniture, sometimes alcohol. It was the responsibility of the residents at the time to supply their own meat and veggies from their gardens. The packers would usually take the supplies directly to the general store, but by this time... Even though they built wooden structures, mostly to fight against the cold, long winters of Montana, they were built quickly, most with no flooring or insulation because they knew this was only a temporary stop. They knew that they would be called away by a different golden siren in the not-too-distant future. The first small town to appear was Bear Town. It was built up in a long, narrow valley, dare I say, gulch, but had a main street and four blocks of structures. More than one saloon, which means the need for a jail, blacksmith shops and restaurants, along with a hotel, general store, and an actual brewery, a livery, drugstore, and a wash house. It was quite the hoppin' place. Most homes were very simple square structures, very few families. The area would continue to grow, at a sloth's pace, because the miner knew, without a shadow of a doubt, the riches were there, but... Because they were forced to use the placer method for mining, they couldn't get very far. That doesn't mean it couldn't be done. From the book The Road to Garnet's Gold, quote, Some proved it was possible to make a profit without roads or advanced mining equipment. One such person was Henry Grant, who filed 18 load claims in First Chance District between 1868 and 1896. Grant became somewhat of a legend early on when word spread that he had taken out $900 worth of gold in six hours by chipping away with common hand tools and $3,000 worth of gold throughout the season using the same crude method. As roads improved, Grant realized gains from all of his claims, end quote. It came down to the Packers couldn't bring up the heavy, heavy equipment that would be needed to do a proper and profitable shaft mine. Once you have the ore, then it would have to be stamped and refined. That's where the real money was to be found. So the city of Garnet didn't really grow until the Packers Trails turned into Wagons Trails, which took (laughs) almost 30 years. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So, again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! Recognizing the need to be able to increase the efforts of removing gold and silver from the quartz in 1895, Dr. Armistead Mitchell and Charles Mussigbroad invested in a 10-stamp mill for the area just outside of First Chance Gulch. While people in the area referred to it as the Town of Mitchell, when it came down to it, hotel owner E.S. Wood applied for the post office and chose to name the town Garnet. It was official. Garnet had a post office and a stamp mill. All it was missing was a Walmart. Road construction began in earnest soon after connecting with the new up-and-coming Bearmouth town. In the fall of 1896, Samuel Ritchie, a 63-year-old miner that had never given up on his dream of hitting the big one, finally did. He purchased a claim he called the Nancy Hanks in honor of Abraham Lincoln's mother in 1864. He'd been blasting and mining and blasting and mining this same claim for 22 years, until finally, he tapped into a body of ore that was several feet thick. When the ore was essayed, it was discovered to be a very high grade, rating it at about $250 in gold and $25 in silver per tonne. And the vein went on and on and on. Of course, news spread quickly and the town of Garnet exploded practically overnight. New claims were being filed daily and many of the new mines yielded hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gold, silver, and quartz. Garnet went up so fast that no type of city had been planned out. There were no street names, buildings just went up wherever they found space. There was a single flat road that inadvertently became the main road, and businesses popped up along either side. According to the Road to Garnet's Gold, quote, Soon a thriving business district with boardwalks lined both sides of the main street. Generally, the commercial one- and two-story buildings constructed on the main street exhibited gable roofs, wood siding, and false fronts. Residential dwellings, with few exceptions, were primarily easily built, gable-roofed, one-story cabins constructed from readily available logs. Unlike the commercial buildings that occupied the flattened area of the ravine, residential dwellings had to be built on the hillside above the main street and along the gulches leading toward the Nancy Hanks and other mines. End quote. And the stamp mill was located just outside of town, I want to say less than four miles. Thirteen saloons would compete for the best spots in town and would distinguish themselves from one another with their own gimmick. Gotta have a gimmick if you're gonna be a star. Garnet also had one of the first female-owned saloons in the Montana Territory. Nellie Phelps owned and operated her own place of business, touting it to be, quote, the warmest, cleanest, and most homelike place in town, end quote. J.K. Wells and his wife, Winifred, would bring the Wells Hotel to Garnet. Mrs. Wells was given her way in all things concerning the design and running of the business, and its grand opening revealed her wisdom when it was praised in the Bear Montana News as saying, Great things were expected when it was announced that J.K. Wells would open his hotel with a grand ball on the 17th of March, but even those who expected the most were agreeably surprised from the moment they entered the front door until the last strains of music died away at seven o'clock the next morning." End quote. Even though her husband got all the credit, Winifred Wells was the one who oversaw the intricate design from the fabric wall covering to the solid oak staircase, from the stained glass in the front doors to the skylights on the very top floor. This floor was reserved for the miners for a reduced rate since they slept on the floor on their own bedrolls, but they were grateful to be able to fall asleep somewhere warm while looking at the stars. Even though six other hotels graced the streets, however haphazard they might have been, the Wells Hotel lasted longer than all of them. Literally. It still stands today. A shadow of its former glory, of course, but you can still sense the grandness it once exuded. The demand for supplies and other necessities grew as more and more miners laid claims and didn't want to take the chance of being away from them too long to make a supply run. So the town responded with four stores, three livery stables, two barber shops, a butcher shop, a candy shop, a doctor's office and drug store, and even a school. Then in October of 1896, Garnet gets its own newspaper. Hot off the presses, the Garnet Mining News, written and edited by John H. Cole, promised to faithfully report every other Thursday the minutiae of Garnet's mining activity, social goings-on, and the political climate. And bonus, his editorials were, quote-unquote, fiery. Things were definitely looking up for this small mining town. By the time 1899 had rolled around, Garnet had resembled a real town, Not just a mining town, but a town that looked like it might actually stick around for a while. Due to the number of growing families and several female-run businesses, the activities reflected as such. It became known for its dances and hayrides, games, quilting and sewing circles, picnics, and formal balls. And to ensure their social circles never became wanting, Granite created transportation options to attend events and festivities in the somewhat nearby Missoula, Montana. A union hall was built, making a public space for a theater and other public amusements, as well as served for the church. A town park was also established on the property of one of the mine owners that had a magnificent view of the mountains in every direction. He opened up his cabin and created tables and benches and open spaces for all kinds of outdoor events. As lovely as the town was becoming, it was, at its very core, a mining town. And as soon as the whispers of gold being discovered in Oregon, and even in the Klondike, those who followed the siren to garnet, packed up and followed the song elsewhere. Hello, hello! Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally-derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free, so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. As the nation rolled over into a new century, the mines began to falter. The ore was too deep and was beginning to be too costly to remove. By 1901, the majority of the mines were being leased, and the residents of Garnet were essentially working for mine owners and not working mines of their own. One by one, the workers began to move on to other prospects, and one by one, the mines began to close their doors. In 1905, the mining world would report, As the work of development progressed, as the shafts gained depths of more than 250 feet, as heavier machinery became necessary, capital was lacking and the mines were allowed to fill up with water. At the same time, leasers went to work wherever an opportunity was offered, and the present prosperity of Garnet is mainly due to their untiring efforts." End quote. If we know nothing else about the citizens of Garnet and the surrounding mining towns, we have learned about their perseverance. Over the next few years, the mines did yield just not what they once had, which is fair since it doesn't actually create more. Once it's gone, it's gone. The residents, however, never wavered on their hope. In true mining fashion, they chose to believe the next big boon would be over the next hill. The next strike could be revealed the next spring as the snow melt revealed shiny contents from higher up in the mountains. But in the fall of 1912, disaster struck. The Daily Missoulian reports on October 2nd, quote, All of the business part of town of Garnet was destroyed by fire early yesterday morning. The only buildings left standing when the stage left were the Davy Store, the Wells Hotel, and Kelly's Saloon. All buildings on both sides of the street below these had been destroyed. The fire started in Joe Fitzgerald's saloon about four o'clock yesterday morning and spread rapidly. The buildings burned included all of the residents and shacks in the lower end of the town." End quote. And with all that damage, no one perished, and only one person had to receive treatment for burns. And that would be Tom Tonkin, who put himself in charge of alerting others to move to safety. Frank Davy, who arrived to Garnet in 1901, he was looking for a place to call home. Originally from London, England, no sooner than he hit American soil, he headed west. Montana called to him, and he tried out several areas until he found Garnet. A businessman, he purchased one of the general stores and renamed it Davy's General Store, and then later purchased the Wells Hotel, which was right next door to the store. He would also own the stage line, some rental properties, and, like others, would file a handful of mining claims. By the time the smoke cleared, Davy's businesses still stood. At this time, whispers of a possible war had been circulating, and after the recent disaster, Frank Davy needed a break. He jumped a boat and headed for his home soil. He visited with his family, and once again, his heart brought him back to Garnet, USA. Side note, for his trip back from England, Frank Davy would purchase a first-class ticket on the luxury liner, the Lusitania. He would travel first class with every luxury afforded him, which would average out to be about four months of a Garnet miner's salary. When he was dropped off in America... The Lusitania underwent some dramatic changes. The elegant mahogany panels, the gilded elevators, and the exquisitely decorated cabins were quickly replaced with guns and ammunition and began its new career as a merchant cruiser. But in only 19 months after her transformation, she was torpedoed by a German submarine tank and sunk in 18 minutes, taking all 1,200 souls with her. Things in Garnet were already pretty quiet, but just prior to America entering World War I, the public service's reserves would send out a plea to all the proud Americans to do their part. Quote, to win the war, we must build ships faster than the enemy can sink them. So every mechanic not now engaged in an industry absolutely essential to the conduct of the war, or who can be spared from his present employment, should immediately enroll. End quote folks just couldn't pass up the promise of good pay and the call to serve their country in ways that they could. The population of Garnet suddenly declined down to a mere 90. But those who decided to stay were not unhappy with their decision and looked back fondly on their life in the small town. The mines were still producing at a fraction of the rate as before, but apparently it was enough to keep at it. In 1920, Prohibition shut down all the saloons, even though those who needed it somehow found a way to find alcohol. By 1925, the little schoolhouse had only three students, and two of them were sisters. But by 1928 and on, there were too many days the workers came back empty-handed. Finally, in 1928, the post office was officially shut down. But wait, there's more. Let's not discount this little town of Garnet just yet. When the Depression hit America in 1929, panic rose to an all-time high. People were frantic looking for work and homes. But strangely enough, and little did they know, Garnet, Montana, would contain the peace they needed. In 1933, new president Franklin D. Roosevelt removed the gold standard, which allowed gold to be turned into paper money and vice versa. America needed its gold reserves to survive and hereby proclaimed that if anyone had any stashed away to turn it in, the price of gold went up to an all-time high of $35 per ounce. The nation was on the hunt for the gold. Almost 250 new residents found their way to Garnet to tap into the mines that had been left abandoned. And it certainly didn't hurt that there were already empty houses that they could move right into, ever faithfully. Frank Davey still was around and dusted off his shelves in the general store and opened his door to the hotel, smelling a resurgence on the horizon. These group of miners weren't necessarily there to make their fortune, but were rather more concentrating on surviving and providing for their families. Garnet Life provided just that. Unfortunately, it didn't last long. Sadly, the mines were still pretty much as empty as they were before, and by 1936, it looked as if Garnet was heading back into, quote, a long sleep. For a brief moment, the residential landscape switched from miners to loggers, as the natural landscape provided for its humans. The school opened back up and the post office was allowed to reopen, willing the little town to keep fighting. Into the 1940s, mining hadn't been abandoned completely as the Yukon Cornelius method was still in full swing and had a bit of accuracy to it. The mountains of Garnet still gave forth gold, silver, copper, lead, and zinc, but once again the whispers of war drifted up the mountain and the use of dynamite was forced to be drastically reduced and then stopped. But the production and need for copper for the war efforts jumped into a priority position. And once again, Garnet stepped up to the challenge. No gold, because that was no longer allowed, but copper. The folks pushed forward in the copper mining, and between 1941 and 1944, the mountains really did sustain the residents. But then, almost overnight, the abundance stopped. And once again, one by one, family by family, Garnet was left behind. And the way it stands today, in some cases, it looks like people took what they could carry and just walked out. A few stayed. A few held on to hope. It's come back before. Maybe. Just maybe it could do it again. When the post office closed for the final time in 1942, only a handful of pillars whose names are synonymous with Garnet still lived there. In 1947, Frank Davy, who carried the town in some ways into the 18th century, passed away. And with that, the town would go dark. Sadly, soon after, the area was scavenged. Rumor that Davy had his gold stashed in various places in his store and hotel led to treasure hunters to tear into the historic buildings. From what I've found, no one has discovered his hiding places. The Bureau of Land Management and the Garnet Preservation Association stepped in to protect the area and stabilize the structures so it can be accessed by the public to experience a mining town history authentically and in person. Which brings me to the part why this episode is so exciting for me. Listener Sue Rowe, hey Sue, introduced this topic at just such a time that I was getting ready to drive through Montana and with just a tiny tweaking of my schedule, I was able to experience this episode topic firsthand. I would love to see the podcast go more in this direction, if at all possible, marrying two of my favorites, travel and history, but we will have to see. As for the ghost town of Garnet, it was truly amazing. It's considered one of the best-preserved ghost towns out west, and I am thankful to the Bureau of Land Management that they pushed to protect this gold mine of artifacts. For the buildings being quote-unquote thrown together, they're still rather sturdy. They are mostly built of the raw logs, and it's clear now to see how the structure of the town came about by the clearing of the logs to be used for the houses. Once the trees were cut down, it made a clear space just big enough for a small square home. As many of you know, I am invested in the people. Not just the timelines and the events, but how they lived day to day. And this ghost town really shows in that aspect. In some of the homes, for example, you could see newspapers being used as insulation, and others added flattened cardboard boxes to their walls when they became available. So much looting had been done that I'm still impressed by how much is still left to see. There are carcasses of cook stoves all over the town in various stages of decay and price points. I went to every single structure and examined every little thing, easily spending the entire afternoon there. I am posting the photos I took on my blog page at elizabethbouchere.com and some will also be available at ragtagnetwork.com forward slash podcast. When I was looking into investigating this topic, I found out that you could spend the night there. Spend the night in a real ghost town. You can camp there, and there's also some options to stay in some of the buildings, Airbnb style also. I was so excited and was committed to getting there in time for that. And and then, driving all by myself, I started to let myself get scared. A ghost town. It is by all accounts, haunted. I was still going to go for it, but I wasn't going to arrive at Garnet until after the sun went down. So for starters, that's extra creepy. I didn't know where I was going or what the setup was or if I had to talk to somebody or pay money. I wasn't really sure. And the website warns several times that the road to get there is extremely rough and they even advise RVs and low-riding vehicles ought not to attempt it. It was just me in my truck this time around, no camper, but I sure didn't feel like navigating potholes, sharp turns, grating, and steep drop-offs after dark. Am I using that as an additional cop-out to avoid spending the night in a haunted ghost town all alone? M- maybe. It was decided. And, as I promised myself to make up for chickening out, I was the first one there the next morning. I'm not sorry I didn't stay there overnight. Mostly. There were plenty of spooks while the sun was shining that I feel I didn't really miss out on much other than lack of sleep. This commercial break is being donated to the Garnet Preservation Association. It's a non organization of people, mostly from Montana, concerned with preserving the history and stories of the Garnet Ghost Town in a partnership with the Bureau of Land Management. Some of their main tasks are, of course, education and discovery, all while using resources to stabilize the buildings without compromising their integrity so that they will be around for centuries into the future, firmly rooted in the past. The organization is 100% funded by grants, memberships, donations, and items sold at the visitor Center. If you have received valuable information and insight, and were perhaps even a tiny bit entertained, I'd be honored if you would send along a donation to the Garnet Preservation Association. If you're feeling a little extra, you can tell them Bag of Bones sent you. If you are fortunate enough to be in the area, do stop by. Enjoy everything there and don't forget to donate and or make a purchase in the store. We owe it to the next generation to keep the past alive in visible, tactile, and personal ways, not just words in a book. To donate, go to garnetghosttown.org or you can click the link in the show notes. And thank you in advance for supporting history. Okay, on to the haunted part of the Garnet Ghost Town. They weren't even exaggerating about the 11-mile trek to get to the ghost town. Now that we know the history of the place, I can only imagine what it was like before they attempted to modernize the road. It was rough. My brain was rattling around in my skull almost the entire way. But side note, before arriving, I couldn't help myself but pull over when I saw a small graveyard with only five graves a few miles down the road four out of the five deceased were named William. There was no explanation of who they were or why they were specifically there, but it was very quiet and peaceful resting place, from what I could tell, and they were doing just that, resting peacefully. Here is where I should say that I have no special gifts in communing with the dead, nor do I want to, I am not a medium or a witch or any of those other titles that are held by people who encourage conversation with those who have passed on before me. But, through no fault or blessing of my own, I have been known to be sensitive to them. Sometimes they seek me out when I am just trying to mind my own business here with the rest of the people who still have heartbeats. (laughs) So... Now you understand why I don't willingly try to get some sleep in a place where the undead just might want to let me know that they are still here. No, thank you. Knowing that, this is my story. The town is as described. It's built in a valley of the mountains. So you drive up, up, up this long twisting S-curves until you reach an opening with a parking lot and a bathroom, thank goodness. Then you walk back down, 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 a steep, winding, but mostly paved path to get to the town. Can you imagine doing that with heavy backpacks? They have a specific point where you can, A, catch your breath, and B, take a magnificent photo of what is left of the town. Me, being the dork that I am, fell in love with it immediately. After I got to the bottom, I started at one end of the tiny town to get to know it better, and took it all the way across. I began in the newer homes, and these were from the second resurgence of the town, so when I say newer, it means from the 1930s or so. They had the plaster between the logs for better insulation, framing around the doors and windows, support beams across the ceiling, metal roofs instead of board on board, and even up to three rooms with, wait for it, floors. Most of the residential places were square with dirt floors and while they might be protected from the inches upon inches of snow, the bitter cold could come right through those gaps in the log walls. Most of the residential houses were nondescript, but I did find a couple that were interesting. There was one cabin that had been built that Frank Davy eventually acquired and he referred to it as the Honeymooner Cabin. Newlyweds were allowed to live there rent-free until they had a home of their own built or until the next newlywed came along. It came fully furnished with a bed and cook stove and was just enough to get the newly married couple on their feet. There was only one house that I felt anything, um mm, otherworldly or creepy, and it was in a house that looked like it was about to topple over. It had been built on a stump using the stump as one of the corner braces, but the tree was obviously not finished growing yet. It didn't grow much higher, but just enough to make the cabin look something like what Dr. Seuss would build if he were a miner. Anyway, there was something. Someone sitting inside the cabin in the back corner. Not moving, not calling attention to himself, but just there. Since the building was tipping, the doorless opening was blocked with wood slats crisscrossing to prevent entrance, and I was okay with that. I smiled and nodded and moved on. When I was there, the schoolhouse, the livery, the post office, Kelly's saloon, as well as the joint saloon, the jail, the blacksmith shop, which was still pretty well stocked, and Davy's stagecoach barn were all still standing. Kelly's saloon still stands and some of the best haunted stories goes with that. The park rangers admit to hearing the plinking of piano music, footsteps, and doors opening and closing. The sounds slash ghosts are said to be most active in the winter months and usually after the sun goes down. While I was there it was just an amazing piece of history with a few hints that it was once a saloon, like the magnificent bar with mirror frame, minus the mirror, and a few scattered tables about. Newspaper advertisements covered the walls, still with their tattered and worn edges, proclaiming dresses for $3.95 and aprons for only $0.39. Funeral notices, help wanted positions, and even a serial story survives in part, printed in the newspaper, tacked on the wall. Two of my favorite places, though, were Davies General Store, Granted, it was now only a large open building, but once I learned the history of it, it meant so much more. The building was originally built for a general store in the late 1890s, and it was the place where everyone went to for the majority of their needs. It's said to be the oldest building in the area. During its early stages, it also served as a way station for the gold that the smaller operations would find and turn in for cash. The store had hidden compartments to hide the gold so it wouldn't be stolen. These hidden safes were tucked inside and built on, and under, the ice house. When Frank Davy purchased it, he understood the value of buying in bulk, and when he put that into practice, it meant that even through the harshest winters, the town had plenty of supplies to carry them through. This, of course, was some of the first items ransacked. He kept his store stocked until the very last, opening its doors whenever someone needed something. The walls are bare now, but during its heyday it had shelves, compartments, and drawers stacked all the way up to the ceiling. And if someone was looking for something in particular, they were welcome to search, and they usually found it. Frank Davy himself moved in next door to the once opulent Wells Hotel. It's said that he turned the kitchen into his own little apartment. The massive cook stove that took up almost the complete wall was guaranteed to keep him warm all winter long. The restaurant was no longer open, and the hotel didn't really bring in much business, but Davy kept the rooms ready and available just in case and always had a few beds at the ready should friends or family make the trek to visit. This was the most haunted building that I could tell. When walking through the main doors, you can, if you squint, see the elegance that was once the Wells Hotel. The staircase that leads up to the room is there by the door, and if you follow the hallway straight back, it opens up to a grand dining room with a massive kitchen right behind that. I felt that in this building, I was watched from the moment I stepped inside. So I made sure to ooh and ah at all the right places, and it wasn't fake. I loved this building and wish it could be returned to its full splendor, but I've always been a sucker for antique elegance. At first, I thought it was a female presence following me around, but after I did my research, it must have been Frank. I ventured up the stairs even though I felt apprehension coming from my tour guide. Each of the rooms still had furniture in them. I wouldn't be sleeping there anytime soon, however. I felt the pressure to walk a little faster, so I only took a few quick peeks in each room, a couple pictures, and then moved on. There was another set of stairs to go to the third floor, but my companion made it very clear to me that my time was up. So, I calmed my pounding heart and made it back down to the main floor. I offered my thanks for sharing this special building with me, and then high-tailed it back out to the warmth and safety of the sunshine. As a regular practice, I usually go into these excursions blind, so I don't have any preconceived ideas before visiting. But after I found out the third floor had a skylight, I wish I would have forced myself to be brave to go see it. I didn't know it was a special floor for the low-income guests. There are apparently a couple of other rooms up there as well for the help. Other than that there have been documented ghostly activity coming from the only other saloon left standing, the Joint, and that's where the visitor center was located. Some have said they heard voices as if someone were standing beside them, and one mentioned that while she was on the way to unlock the doors in the morning, she heard music, but as soon as her keys jingled, the music stopped. I spent a lot of time in there, and I didn't feel anything. But it was daylight, and there was a lot of people. Standing out in the open spaces, I couldn't settle into a calm that I usually feel when out of doors in the forest. Even though there are very few deaths documented for the town, perhaps it was such a beloved place that those who spent time there can't bear to be leaving it, or they might just be stopping by to check in on their mining prospects before moving on to the next mining town. The Bureau of Land Management undertook the preservation of Garnet in 1972 with the donation of the 20-acre mining claim that encompassed the bulk of the historic buildings. The Garnet Preservation Association was formed in 1983 and have been assisting the Bureau of Land Management with their efforts ever since. The Bureau and the GPA are attempting to hold the Garnet ghost town in a state of quote-unquote arrested decay. In other words, they are trying to freeze the place in time. They want the authentic atmosphere of the abandoned town and are making a valiant effort to use and reuse all the material found there. They say, quote, That way when you visit Garnet you can touch authentic historic fabric that makes the old town an authentic ghost town, end quote. In August 2010, the National Park Service officially listed the Garnet Historic District in the National Register of Historic Places. I'll end with this perfect piece from the book, The Road to Garnet's Gold. Quote, the road to Garnet's gold was long and twisting, starting with the first discovery worked by the Stuarts at Gold Creek and continuing through the many gold rushes of the 1860s. It is a road filled with drama, frustration, successes, and, most of all, hope. Those who lived and toiled in quest of the elusive mineral sought by humans from the beginnings of recorded history all had their own stories, none more important than the other. As Montana's last booming gold camp of the 1800s, Garnet takes its place as part of the mining frontier that defined the territory and the state." End quote. And that is brings us to the end of this week's request episode. Special thanks again to Sue Rowe for her timely request. I had an amazing time researching this town up close and personal. I hope you enjoyed it too. If you'd like to see the photos I took, please go to elizabethbougere.com and check out my blog called In Her Own Words. I have loaded it up with lots of pictures. Enjoy your weekend, and I can't wait to meet you back here for our fourth Request episode in Season 3. I'm Elizabeth Bougerie. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Boucheret and DCT Enterprises.